Chapter 3 On his way to work, Rick Deckard, as Lord knew how many other people, stopped briefly to skulk about in front of one of San Francisco's larger pet shops along Animal Row. In the center of the block-long display window, an ostrich, in a heated, clear plastic cage, returned his stare. The bird, according to the info plaque attached to the cage, had just arrived from a zoo in Cleveland. It was the only ostrich on the West Coast. After staring at it, Rick spent a few more minutes staring grimly at the price tag. He then continued on to the Hall of Justice on Lombard Street and found himself a quarter of an hour late to work. As he unlocked his office door, his superior, Police Inspector Harry Bryant, jug-eared and red-headed, sloppily dressed but wise-eyed and conscious of nearly everything of any importance, hailed him. Meet me at 9.30 in Dave Holden's office. Inspector Bryant, as he spoke, flicked briefly through a clipboard of onion-skin-typed sheets. Holden, he continued as he started off, is in Mount Zion Hospital with a laser track through his spine. He'll be there for a month at least, until they can get one of those new organic plastic spinal sections to take hold. What happened? Rick asked, chilled. The department's chief bounty hunter had been all right yesterday. At the end of the day, he had, as usual, zipped off in his hover car to his apartment in the crowded, high-prestige Knob Hill area of the city. Bryant muttered over his shoulder something about 9.30 in Dave's office and departed, leaving Rick standing alone. As he entered his own office, Rick heard the voice of his secretary, Anne Marston, behind him. Mr. Deckard, you know what happened to Mr. Holden? He got shot. She followed after him into the stuffy, closed-up office and set the air filtering unit into motion. Yeah, he responded absently. It must have been one of those new, extra-clever Andes the Rosen Association is turning out, Miss Marston said. Did you read over the company's brochure and the spec sheets? The Nexus 6 brain unit they're using now is capable of selecting within a field of two trillion constituents or ten million separate neural pathways. She lowered her voice. You missed the vid call this morning. Miss Wilde told me. It came through the switchboard exactly at nine. A call in? Rick asked. Miss Marston said, a call out by Mr. Bryant to the WPO in Russia, asking them if they would be willing to file a formal written complaint with the Rosen Association's factory representative East. Harry still wants the Nexus 6 brain unit withdrawn from the market? He felt no surprise. Since the initial release of its specifications and performance charts back in August of 2020, most police agencies which dealt with escaped Andes had been protesting. The Soviet police can't do any more than we can, he said. Legally, the manufacturers of the Nexus 6 brain unit operated under colonial law, their parent auto factory being on Mars. We had better just accept the new unit as a fact of life, he said. 
It's always been this way, with every improved brain unit that's come along. I remember the howls of pain when the Suderman people showed their old T-14 back in 18. Every police agency in the Western Hemisphere clamored that no test would detect its presence in an instance of illegal entry here. As a matter of fact, for a while they were right. Over 50 of the T-14 android, as he recalled, had made their way by one means or another to Earth and had not been detected for a period in some cases up to an entire year. But then, the Voigt empathy test had been devised by the Pavlov Institute working in the Soviet Union. And no T-14 android, insofar at least as was known, had managed to pass that particular test. Want to know what the Russian police said? Miss Marston asked. I know that, too. Her freckled, orange face glowed. Rick said, I'll find out from Harry Bryant. He felt irritable. Office gossip annoyed him because it always proved better than the truth. Seating himself at his desk, he pointedly fished about in a drawer until Miss Marston, perceiving the hint, departed. From the drawer, he produced an ancient creased manila envelope. Leaning back, tilting his important-style chair, he rummaged among the contents of the envelope until he came across what he wanted, the collected, extant data on the Nexus 6. A moment's reading vindicated Miss Marston's statement. The Nexus 6 did have two trillion constituents, plus a choice within a range of ten million possible combinations of cerebral activity. In forty-five one-hundredths of a second, an android equipped with such a brain structure could assume any one of fourteen basic reaction postures. Well, no intelligence test would trap such an Andy. But then intelligence tests hadn't trapped an Andy in years, not since the primordial crude varieties of the 1970s. The Nexus 6 android types, Rick reflected, surpassed several classes of human specials in terms of intelligence. In other words, Androids equipped with the new Nexus 6 brain unit had, from a sort of rough, pragmatic, no-nonsense standpoint, evolved beyond a major but inferior segment of mankind, for better or worse. The servant had, in some cases, become more adroit than its master. But new scales of achievement... For example, the Voigt-Kampf empathy test had emerged as criteria by which to judge. An android, no matter how gifted as to pure intellectual capacity, could make no sense out of the fusion which took place routinely among the followers of Mercerism, an experience which he, and virtually everyone else, including subnormal chickenheads, managed with no difficulty. He had wondered, as had most people at one time or another, precisely why an android bounced helplessly about when confronted by an empathy-measuring test. Empathy, evidently, existed only within the human community, 
whereas intelligence, to some degree, could be found throughout every phylum and order, including the arachnida. For one thing, the empathic faculty probably required an unimpaired group instinct. A solitary organism, such as a spider, would have no use for it. In fact, it would tend to abort a spider's ability to survive. It would make him conscious of the desire to live on the part of his prey. Hence, all predators, even highly developed mammals such as cats, would starve. Empathy, he once had decided, must be limited to herbivores or anyhow omnivores who could depart from a meat diet because ultimately the empathic gift blurred the boundaries between hunter and victim, between the successful and the defeated. As in the fusion with Mercer, everyone ascended together, or, when the cycle had come to an end, fell together into the trough of the tomb world. Oddly, it resembled a sort of biological insurance, but double-edged. As long as some creature experienced joy, then the condition for all other creatures included a fragment of joy. However, if any living being suffered, then for all the rest the shadow could not be entirely cast off. A herd animal such as man would acquire a higher survival factor through this. An owl or a cobra would be destroyed. Evidently, the humanoid robot constituted a solitary predator. Rick liked to think of them that way. It made his job palatable. In retiring, that is, killing an Andy, he did not violate the rule of life laid down by Mercer. You shall kill only the killers, Mercer had told them the year empathy boxes first appeared on Earth. And in Mercerism, as it evolved into a full theology, the concept of the killers had grown insidiously. In Mercerism, an absolute evil plucked at the threadbare cloak of the tottering, ascending old man, but it was never clear who or what this evil presence was. A Mercerite sensed evil without understanding it. Put another way, a Mercerite was free to locate the nebulous presence of the killers wherever he saw fit. For Rick Deckard, an escaped humanoid robot, which had killed its master, which had been equipped with an intelligence greater than that of many human beings, which had no regard for animals, which possessed no ability to feel empathic joy for another life form's success or grief at its defeat, that, for him, epitomized the killers. Thinking about animals reminded him of the ostrich he had seen in the pet store. Temporarily, he pushed away the specks on the Nexus 6 brain unit, took a pinch of Mrs. Siddons' number three and four snuff, and cogitated. Then he examined his watch, saw that he had time. He picked up his desk vidphone and said to Miss Marston, Give me the happy dog pet shop on Sutter Street. Yes, sir, Miss Marston said and opened her phone book. 
They can't really want that much for the ostrich, Rick said to himself. They expect you to car trade like in the old days. Happy dog pet shop, a man's voice declared, and on Rick's vid screen a minute, happy face appeared. Animals could be heard bawling. That ostrich you have in your display window, Rick said. He toyed with a ceramic ashtray before him on the desk. What sort of a down payment would I need for that? Let's see, the animal salesman said, groping for a pen and pad of paper. One third down, he figured. May I ask, sir, if you're going to trade something in? Guardedly, Rick said, I haven't decided. Let's say we put the ostrich on a 30-month contract, the salesman said, at a low, low interest rate of 6% a month. That would make your monthly payment, after a reasonable down, You'll have to lower the price you're asking, Rick said. Knock off 2000 and I won't trade anything in. I'll come up with cash. Dave Holden, he reflected, is out of action. That could mean a great deal, depending on how many assignments show up during the coming month. Sir, the animal salesman said, our asking price is already $1,000 under book. Check your Sydneys. I'll hang on. I want you to see for yourself, sir, that our price is fair. Christ, Rick thought. They're standing firm. However, just for the heck of it, he wiggled his bent Sydneys out of his coat pocket, thumbed to ostrich, comma, male, female, old, young, sick, well, mint, used, and inspected the prices. Mint, Male, young, well, the salesman informed him. Thirty thousand dollars. He, too, had his Sydneys out. We're exactly one thousand under book. Now, your down payment, I'll think it over, Rick said, and call you back. He started to hang up. Your name, sir? The salesman asked alertly. Frank Merriwell, Rick said. And your address, Mr. Merriwell, in case I'm not here when you call back. He made up an address and put the vidphone receiver back on its cradle. All that money, he thought. And yet, people buy them. Some people have that kind of money. Picking up the receiver again, he said harshly, Give me an outside line, Miss Marston. And don't listen in on the conversation. It's confidential. He glared at her. Yes, sir, Miss Marston said. Go ahead and dial. She then cut herself out of the circuit, leaving him to face the outside world. He dialed, by memory, the number of the false animal shop at which he had gotten his ersatz sheep. On the small vid screen, a man dressed like a vet appeared. Dr. McRae, the man declared. This is Deckard. How much is an electric ostrich? Oh, I'd say we could fix you up for less than $800. How soon did you want delivery? We would have to make it up for you. 
There's not that much call for... I'll talk to you later, Rick interrupted. Glancing at his watch, he saw that 9.30 had arrived. Goodbye. He hurriedly hung up, rose, and shortly thereafter stood before Inspector Bryant's office door. He passed by Bryant's receptionist, attractive, with waist-length braided silver hair, and then the inspector's secretary, an ancient monster from the Jurassic Swamp, frozen and sly, like some archaic apparition fixated in the tomb world. Neither woman spoke to him nor he to them. Opening the inner door, he nodded to his superior, who was busy on the phone. Seating himself, he got out the specs on Nexus 6, which he had brought with him, and once more read them over as Inspector Bryant talked away. He felt depressed. And yet, logically, because of Dave's sudden disappearance from the work scene, he should be at least guardedly pleased.